You are listening to Making It in the Toy Industry, episode number 118. Welcome to Making It in the Toy Industry, a podcast for inventors and entrepreneurs like you. And now your host, Ajelle Wade. Hey there, toy people, Ajelle Wade here, and welcome back to another episode of the Toy Coach Podcast, Making It in the Toy Industry. This is a weekly podcast brought to you by thetoycoach.com. Today's guest on the podcast is Joshua Punin, who is the owner of Source for India. Is that correct? Correct owner of Source for India. And honestly, Joshua, I've got to say, I don't remember how I found you now because I've literally been trying to get you on the show for like six months, maybe longer. I think it was LinkedIn. I don't remember what post I saw you on, what article I saw you on, but I remember reaching out to my media manager and saying, we need to get this guy on the podcast. And we've got to talk about sourcing outside of China, like other options for sourcing. So I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Welcome, Joshua. Thank you, Ajel. It's a pleasure and thank you so much for having me on here today. I think one of the reasons maybe it came up somewhere along the lines of LinkedIn or somewhere was, uh, was an article done by Jacqueline Vong, uh, who I've known for some time, uh, right. for many years, and we worked together. And uh, yeah, I think that's how we kind of got the rhythm flowing on the India story earlier last year. So thank you for your patience. And uh, I'm really happy to be here today. Yeah, this is a time where we have to be flexible. <laughs> Because <laughs> like Abs- things yeah. change in an instant. But let me Absolutely. give a quick background on Josh. Working in the international toy industry for 16 years, based out of Sydney, Australia, Josh has an extensive experience as an international sales director with a demonstrated history of working in the consumer children's toy industry strategically for 16 years, representing some of the largest toy brands in the world, also has the largest agency in the Asia Pacific region. Josh, you've worked with well-known brands such as Peppa Pig, MGA's LOL, Zuzu Pets, and as well as many other established brands across the Asia Pacific region and Pan India. So in 2005, Josh started traveling and working throughout the Indian toy market to build numerous toy companies position in the market today. And that's what I want to talk about because so many listeners of this podcast, students of Toy Creators Academy are interested in hearing more about manufacturing outside of China. And since that's not my specific area of expertise, I thought, why not bring an expert on the show? So Welcome again, Josh. Would you please give us a little bit of a background? Just I, I want to hear almost how your story started before the toy industry, and then we can get into the toy industry, if that sounds good to you. Yeah, that sounds good. I'll, I'll try to be as brief as I can okay. uh, on that side of it. Yeah. So I finished university. I studied a Bachelor of Business in uh, Sydney. I then looked at getting into the marketing uh, side of, uh, of the business. So I ended up joining Microsoft early on in my career in Sydney uh, in a marketing role. Uh, from a junior, and then I was able to move into a kind of a minor product manager role. And from then, I was looking to stay in tech. In those days, Microsoft liked you to go out, get a job somewhere else, and come back later as a senior. So they gave you that experience, and then were able to push you along and say, why don't you go work with a partner? So I, I went out there, thought about it, and then just lo and behold, there was an opportunity that came up in the toy business through a, a very close family member and mm-hmm. said, look, there's an interesting opportunity for you why don't you try the toys out? And 
if it doesn't work, you can go back into your marketing position in a tech in a tech company. I said, you know what? Sounds interesting. It's toys. I always loved toys as a kid. Who didn't? Lots of Star Wars at home for memories there. <laughs> Millennium Falcon in my in my in my uh, in my bedroom up until the age of at least twelve years old. So I thought, okay, if it doesn't work out, I'll go back. And then basically, I was thrown into the deep end internationally. I had no idea what I was doing. I basically was put on a plane to go out and go to a few trade fairs uh, early on, yeah. and then. I was exposed to a lot of toy companies early on in my early 20s. And I was introduced to people at Playmates at the time, which were famous for Turtles, Ninja Turtles. Mm. And then I was introduced to MGA very early on. And I was introduced to companies like Character Options and Vivid. And uh, I mean, the, the list goes on. And I was able to then to slowly tap into different markets across Asia. And I was jumping around to countries like Korea and Japan and, and China and India very early on. And that's how I was exposed to these markets. And I was very fortunate to be able to forge some wonderful uh, relationships with a lot of business partners uh, in Asia. And I could see the, the shift very early on and where it could go, especially India. I could see early on in 2005, 2006, when I was there, that this is the, early, this is the beginning. This is when you, you're somewhere and, and say to yourself, in 15 to 20 years, it's going to be interesting. Let's see where this goes. You could, you could smell it in the air. And really? so 16 years later, the penny had dropped, or almost 14 years later, the penny had dropped and said, it's time to look outside the box. It's time to look around ourselves and see what other options are there in this world. And one thing that I think India is very different in comparison to the other parts of Asia, Southeast Asia, is I don't think it's great in marketing itself. <laughs> I don't think it's a great promoter of itself. Right. And, I, and I say it in the nicest way. And I think... Unfortunately, there's a lot of misconceptions. And only from my learning, my experience, my learning early on, I could see those differences. I'm sorry, I actually maybe deviated from the first question. So no, my apologies it, if I've gone into a tangent. It's okay. It's an interesting tangent. I'm with you. I'm enjoying the tangent. Go. <laughs> okay. Go. Okay. So India, uh, very early on, uh, a lot of small businesses out there playing in the toy business. And compared to Southeast Asia, we have established companies in Japan and Korea and Taiwan. It was very different. It was, although it wasn't mature back then, it was still much more mature than India was. And there was only a handful of companies in India that knew what to do with a, a uh, international brand. And it was uh, very, very difficult to get started. And I'll use an example. When I was very old in my, early on in my career, I went to Korea at the age of 24. I had maybe one or two customers to meet. And I was put in a position where I had these, these brands that were not that famous back then, like Moose. Mm -hmm. Now, Moose was not that famous back in 2005, 2006. Mm -hmm. uh, wasn't that recognized, especially in, in Asia. I mean, no one had any idea where Asia is dominated by the Japanese brands primarily. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting around working with, with these Korean businessmen to forge deals with us through Direct Response TV because Direct Response TV in Korea was very big back in those days versus traditional distribution through the retail channels. And I was sitting with these guys trying to come up with strategies. How do we launch a new brand, a new product? So already early on, I was exposed to being able to push angles in different ways that was very different to the traditional European model of show a product to a distribution partner in a country right. and then run with it. I never had that from day one. I was exposed to a very unusual place, a very unusual customer base, a very unusual cultural taste in product that was not as exposed to Western products. Right. And say, so, okay, how do I then take these, I, these products that may or may not mean anything in the West at this point, because some of the brands were fairly new, and then make them work, and then you try to use that formula elsewhere. 
and try to replicate that formula in other countries. And I realized as I was going, it doesn't work. What works in one country in Korea does not work in Japan. And what works in Japan does not work in Taiwan or doesn't work in China. You know, I was in China very early on in 2005 with a very few brands on the shelf, or Western brands on the shelf, and a lot of them were knockoffs. Right. You know, when I went to Carrefour in Shanghai, I never forget, I'm in a, a wall of toys. And, and I think when I was looking at it, I think my, one or two of them had, had a, an actual a real brand on the shelf versus, I don't mean a knockoff. I mean, just a, what I mean is that it's an inspired brand of a Transformer or a, right. n- another well-known product, but it wasn't called Transformers. India was the same in many ways. So I guess I was given a playground, but it was a very different place to being thrown into Europe and playing with because mm. there you are completely unknown. Who's this guy from Sydney, Australia, who has no idea about this market? And you're telling me you got a toy that you think my market's going to like? I mean, let's let's be real. Right. So what year was this happening? I started in 2005. So it took me a long time. It took me many years, you know, a lot of knocking, a lot of building, a lot of grit to get some runs on the board. You know, it was only until about 2000, maybe two years later after I started, I was getting some good traction in some markets. So let's Across talk. Asia. Let's talk. De- um, we got to break this down. We got to break this yes. way down for my for my people's <laughs> right. here. So Absolutely. when when you're talking, when you were saying you started in 2005, what did a typical day look like for you? What were you trying to? What were your goals you were trying to solve? Who were you working for? What What were you doing? Okay, so at that time, we had a portfolio in our agency of about 30 companies. And what agency mixed was European. this? So at the time, this agency was made up. You know, it's in Sydney. That company had about 30 companies in a portfolio. And those of those 30 companies, you had companies like Moose, you had companies like Morrison Entertainment, Corinthian, Vivid. I mean, we had a lot of companies, some, some exist today, some don't exist today. That's the nature of the toy business. Yeah. And with those, with those agents, with those, pro, with those products and those brands, they meant some things in Europe. They meant something maybe in so some of them in Australia or New Zealand, some in the US, but they meant absolutely nothing in Asia because <laughs> Asia was untouched. It was untapped. It was unknown. It was, Josh, go on a plane and let's see if we can make these things work because these markets didn't exist. And when you say, let's see if you can make these things work, you're saying, let's see if you can sell these product into these Asian markets. Absolutely. So how did I find customers? How did I look for people? What did I do day to day? That's yeah. the, how did it just fall from the, squi- the yeah. sky? No, no one called me and said, hey, Josh, I'm sitting in Seoul. I've heard about you. You're a nice guy in Sydney. Mind you, it's before Facebook and Instagram that existed, <laughs> right? And uh, we got your number somewhere in the yellow pages and we called you. Uh, I wish. I used to dream that that might happen. (laughs) So, you know, I would dream that that would happen. But how it happened was that I might have got a reference to a company. And when I was visiting Korea, I might have had two customers. And that customer might have been introduced by somebody else at the time. Or they might have looked at something else. So I tapped into that. But when I was in Korea, I was able to go through the stores, go through the shops, speak to people, look at the brands, look at the importers, look at who was, who was doing what. And, you know, you start to then run the field and you start to make your calls and send your emails and you, you start doing your blast outs. You start getting on the phone, uh, hustling, you know, how do we get in through to this guy, this company? How do we get, because I knew talking to the staff in these companies were not going to get me anywhere. I needed to talk to the English speaking staff that was the decision maker at the end of the day. Right. In some cases, for example, I'll use Bandai Japan. We all know Bandai Japan is yeah. a very large company. Mm-hmm. Bandai Japan took me three years to get in touch with the right person from when I started. Wow. So when I started in 2005, it took me three years until the guy in Bandai Japan 
was willing to have an open conversation with me. And then we forged a great relationship once we connected, I think afterwards. And we had, we had some commonalities and it just took time. And in Asia, it's all about building relationships. It's not about the business today. It's about what's going to happen in one, two, three, four, five, ten years from now. That if we can hold hands together initially and see where things take us, and even if it doesn't work out now, it might work out in the future. So it's a very long-term view. It's about understanding what their needs are, not what I'm trying to push down their way. You know, it's not about me, it's about them. And once I understood them, then I was able to get it. And then you have to imagine, I have to explain this to the US company and the European company who have expectations. And then they need to understand it's this product that you sold 3 million pieces for in, in the UK. Guess what? It's not going to work. It's not going to sell. It's got to change. We've got to change the color, the packaging, the name. You know, it's going from a duck to a platypus. I'm using an example. The product, suddenly, the way it looks on the shelf in, in the US or in UK is going to look completely different. And that's if you get support. Mm-hmm. And the strange thing is sometimes, and I'll, this is an example of the, of the toy industry, we think we have a winner. We have a wonderful product. It's working everywhere else. People are talking about it everywhere. And the company in Japan or Korea and Taiwan or even India might say, you know what? We don't like that product, but we like the one next to it. And the other one, you can't give away. And you don't know why. But they want that one. They want to talk about that product that nobody wants to talk about. might even be shelved. And that's it. It's, you just can't pick it. In those early years, did you identify any similarities in the types of products that the Asian market would select, like size similarities, colors, the way the product was communicated in the packaging or the features that it had? Yes, I did. I picked up pretty quickly. I knew watching the trade and looking at the market, and I walked a lot of retail because you've got to walk retail in every market to understand what's going on on the ground. Right. So after looking at it, understanding and speaking to the guys and learning, I realized that when it comes to markets like the Asia-Pacific region, and I'm not talking so much Philippines and Singapore and Southeast Asia. I'm talking North Asia right now. It's got to have a novelty factor. It's got to have a wow. There's got to be that magic moment in a product. It's got to be something that can be marketed. And if a customer looks at it and goes, ah, I get it. That's interesting. That's got a wow factor to it. So one of the most successful products I had very early on was a product from Moose called Magic Sand. This is very old. Now, we all know Magic Sand became a very common property even today. You know, there's yeah. lots of versions of Magic Sand that exist. But this was the first time that we've actually promoted Magic Sand in the water in Korea where we had all these incredible colors and it was magical. We had this product that you could go and mold this sand in the water and then take it out and it was dry. It was magical. Yeah. And so for that market, as I use that as an example, it made sense because it was novel. It was very unique and you could market it really well and have that before and after. And so that would be a prime example of how it would be successful in those markets, a product. That was my pinup. That was how I could model the rest of it going forward after that. Because for that product, we must have sold two to $3 million worth of product, which is a very big deal. Wow. Yeah. So I got to say, I made a lot of money for these companies over the years in Asia and they never expected any of this at the time. It was only years later that expectations for Asia. Very early on, they didn't know what to expect because it was all unknown territory. All these guys and companies we're talking to, they could have come from Mars because (laughs) it didn't make any difference. (laughs) So now let's say, I don't know, let's fast forward to maybe like 2010. What was happening at that point? Was it still green? Like where, where were you at in 2010? 2010 was definitely peaking. Asia was really taking off. Uh, okay. What parts things of were firing off everywhere. 
Korea was huge. Japan okay. was building. Japan suddenly being an insular market started opening up to Western brands more and more. Okay. They were open to talking about brands. You know, we had a, I launched a product in Japan called Spray Art years ago and uh, actually it was phenomenal with a company called Sega Japan. We had done, you know, huge numbers for them. And then we had Zuzu Pets that year in 2009, 2010. Yeah. Remember Zuzu Pets? Yeah, I do. We, you know, mega deals. I mean, there was a lot flying. At that point, there were a lot of great products, a lot of great novelty and a lot of open-mindedness in 2010 to new. The world had shut down a bit in 2008, 2009 with the GFC. Everyone clamped down. Everybody was a bit more cautious. Uh, But in 2010, the doors opened up again and things were roaring up. And I think that was really, it was interesting you picked out 2010 because I think if I look back now, it was a peak, peak period for for, for us as a business as well. Oh, interesting. I did it because it was five years beyond your 2005 start, but I want to do another five years. So let's go to 2015. All right, 2015. Yeah. 2015. That was a big year. (laughs) Wow, it uh, seems like you're having a lot of big years. Yeah, yeah, that was a big year for other reasons. But 2015, (laughs) generally speaking, it was plateauing a little bit in 2015. That took 10 years. So 10 years, and we we got to a comfortable level. We knew what the we could start forecasting accurately. And where we could you start at this point working? Was this Source for India began when? Source for India has been a labor of love for some time, <laughs> and I'll get to that. I'll get to that. Okay, soon. okay, not yet. Where but, are you? But but not yet. But in 2015, the agency business uh, had come to a position where we could start actually really forecasting. We've had a very strong base of customers in a lot of countries, and relationships are very strong, and we can get things done pretty quickly. We can work out whether we have something or we don't have something very fast. Rather than 10 years earlier, we're still trying to gauge the market, understand what's going on. It's more mature. Asia's become more mature and more accepting. And I was traveling a lot. You know, I was, you know, I would have been traveling two, three weeks at a time, sometimes across uh, multiple countries, uh, besides going to trade fairs. And so I could meet a lot of customers and do a lot of deals uh, with people and expose them to a lot of products. And that's the best way, better than any trade fair, actually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think that, I think 2015, we're starting to get to a point where, you know, we're getting comfortable and we can explain to companies where we see things going, where we okay. see brands and, and products going in each, you, in each region. And they can believe you because you have a track and record. They believe, and they can believe, yes, of course, <laughs> of course. Finally, after all those years, they can, if I say something, and then, and then what happens is you start getting very conservative because if you start, you know, overselling things, you know, expectation builds. So now you've got to manage that too. And you've got to be realistic, not overpromise either. And that's a very important part of the business. And we've got to be realistic. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So we're at, now let's jump to 2020 <laughs> when okay. the whole well, world shut yes. down. Um, and right. I think, I, I just would love to hear like what was happening for you because first it was the pandemic and factories shut down. But then when everything reopened, it was a shipping container crisis, which I'm assuming for that's you right. was almost like the trigger to probably elevate people looking into India or other options to Absolutely. manufacture. Yes. So what, like, yeah, walk us through what happened there. So Asia and I'll say this to today, Asia's got to be one of the two areas, Asia and Latin America to the two worst hit regions wow. in terms of business, bottom line, just, just business activity compared to the West. And I come back from New York Toy Fair and I can see things are shutting down. You see all the conservatism kicking in. Everybody goes you know, into that protective mode. And in Asia, rather than throwing money and spending money, it's the opposite. It's conserving. We've got to eat. We've got to have a roof over our head. And then, funny enough, prior to COVID, I reopened a conversation 
with a colleague of mine about India. And he's uh, actually, he's my business partner today. And, you know, we've been in touch now for 16 years, ever since I started. And we started talking and he said, Josh, you know, we got to get talking about India again. And I said, agree with you. I said, I think it's looking like it's time. I think we should start having those conversations. I think it's time to start looking at opportunities. And the reason being is not primarily because of alternative manufacturing. It was because the Indian government had changed the rules around the tariffs and the mm. duties of importing goods into India. It went to 66%. From? About, I think, 20%. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so it's pretty major. Yeah. And suddenly India, one of the biggest toy markets for us, just collapsed. And that was already the writing on the wall was already in 19, was coming. And so that was already the conversations had started flying at that point. Wait, I'm sorry. Why did that news make you say, we should talk about India again? <laughs> yes. Why, yes. Why, uh, why would Be- a higher because, tariff rate encourage you to do that? Explain. Because we couldn't import toys. They couldn't import toys into India anymore. Mm-hmm. It wasn't viable. Yeah. It wasn't viable. Yeah, so why the would you go after re- that? Because the next move was, we need to make the toys in India and we need to supply the market domestically. We, uh... need, to, we need to make... We oh. need to look outside the box. And now oh. the door, the conversations opened up. Oh, so you weren't thinking about, oh, I get it. You weren't thinking about like the manufacturing to export. It was like they couldn't literally, well, how, I mean, that was, was one part, but like. It was, the, it was already prior. That's, forget COVID for a minute. This was already, right. this is like, so there was before and after that was the marriage of this. Mm. And so the conversation was about how do we service this wonderful market mm. without losing the opportunity and then COVID hit, and mm. then the conversation went from that to we need to look out of we need to look at options other companies because we wow. know what we can do in India. So go so ahead. So the penny yeah. had dropped twice. The penny had dropped twice, and I've been talking about India for years. I mean, it was not an overnight conversation. This has been an ongoing discussion about one day we'll get to a point where we can manufacture in India. We can make India the next hub of China. It's coming. We used to talk about this all the time. So this was not a a new topic. It's just that you need those moments. You need those defining changes to make the moves, to inspire everybody to think outside the box. And there were two reasons that still exist. And so that conversation prior to COVID and then suddenly COVID hit, like you said, March hit, the world was changing. We were all panicking. And I got on the phone to my colleague over in India and I said, I said to him, listen, we need to address this now. We know there are issues out of China. There are going to be more issues out of China. We know we need to be able to provide opportunities to supply goods into India as well. We need to look at both sides of it because it's very, very real. And I can sense talking to a lot of the companies I know in Europe and the US, they want to look outside the box. They're mm-hmm. ready. They mm-hmm. weren't ready a year ago mm-hmm. or two years ago, but they're ready to talk. They're ready yeah. to listen. Forget talking. They're ready to listen at least. Right. right. And so we decided... Let's start talking to companies we are familiar with in India. Let's start discussing what we can produce. Let's start looking at the options there. So we started going through every single company we knew in India. Wait, I just realized that you did all of this remotely because before we started this interview, you told me you haven't traveled in two years. Wow. Okay, that's cool. Look at you. Yeah, this was talking about not sleeping and not eating and not doing anything else. That's what It was all of that and above. And, uh, you know, locking yourself up in a room, uh, it reminds me actually of a documentary. Sorry, I'm on a tangent. It's a very good documentary about Dr. Dre, the, 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 the headphones that were sold. Uh, there's a very famous, 
Yeah, Beats. Mm-hmm. And the guy, the, I forgot his name, is very famous uh, producer. He did the deal. Who's the guy responsible for doing the deal with the Beats? And he locked himself in the bathroom there and he didn't come out for days or weeks when he was doing the, the, the deals wow. for the beat. You know, it was, it was part of the documentary. And I feel like I was the same. I was locked in a room and I was not going anywhere until I was getting these agreements done, making sure we can find the right companies, manufacturers in India to produce for us because I had to explain what our expectations were. And right. so we were going through it. And, we, we, and remember, they were also in lockdown in India. So we were all in a position where we couldn't leave or go. And we were on calls going through videos and through images and we're going through technicalities of what we can, we can and can't produce. Wow. And, we, and, and not every factory is from the toy industry. And right. we'll get to that later. But yeah. you know, they're from automobile industry. Right. They're from spare parts industry. They're from the furniture industry. So we're curating, while we're doing this, we're also curating factories into coming to the fold yeah. and educating them. So there's, there's those who are around, which are a handful, and then there's those who we need on board to leverage from their expertise. So this was not like someone walking to China and saying, okay, let's just get a couple of factories and, and show what they make. This is from scratch. No, yeah, this is, I, you know, this is like probably like the 80s in China. <laughs> this, right. is, this is, yeah, this is, except I can't run around on a plane from Bangalore to, to Mumbai, to Delhi, to Pune, to Chennai and right. do it. I've got to do it through, you know, and thank goodness I've got my, um, my business partner, who's an amazing man, 30-year veteran of the industry, uh, David Selvaraj, who I work with hand in hand. And, uh, you know, we just based in Chennai. He lives mm-hmm. in Chennai in India. He's based okay. there. And uh, as I said, we've known each other for, forever and there's a great trust and, and uh, mutual respect for each other. Mm. And we just made this happen. And we, we've now today, I think we have, I don't know, we must have over 30 factories we're working with in India today in many different areas of expertise that can produce a lot of different types of products and different materials. Oh, that's fantastic. So I have to stop you right now because I know yes. what my listeners are thinking. They're saying, what, Josh, you've got all that set up. How do I get in touch with your company, Source for India? How do I start manufacturing in India? Like, are there MOQ limits? Like, what if I'm a startup? What, what do I tell? Tell us more, Josh. How do, how do we do All right. Begin? Okay. This is a great question. I'll try to explain as succinctly as I can. India is not China. I'm going to be, uh, be honest. It's not China. Okay. And I'm not going to pretend it is because when I say that, I don't mean we can't produce everything they produce. It's the efficiency Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So efficiencies are the learning block and we are getting better and the factories are getting better every day. Uh, the engineers are amazing. The, the teams are amazing. The in-house QAQC, even our own internal QAQC is fantastic in our company. And there are some things that we can do, but what India is not set up yet for are doing the small runs. Mm. Okay. Now we could do a plush in terms of soft goods. We could do the small runs. And define right. small runs, 500, 1,000, 2,000. Yeah, 500,000. Yeah, I think 500, 1,000. I think that is where India is not ready for. We're still in the game for getting the commitments where we're onboarding factories, where we've got to get sizable volumes through, where we need to build up you know, the economies of scale, yeah. which we are doing. Okay, and that's where we are with India. It doesn't mean we won't in the next two years, or because a lot's happened in the last twelve months, and it could be in another twelve months. We could say, "Jail, you know, it's looking damn good. What do you want to make? What do you, what do you, what do you, what do your listeners want to make?" Because I'm, I'm open. We're ready. We're ready to, to hold their hand. And this process is hand holding, not only for the factory on our side. It's hand holding for the customer, and we're there the entire way from beginning to end. 
and we run the feasibilities. We listen to everybody and we don't push anything that we cannot do or feel comfortable doing. We are very transparent that way because if we're not, we're going to have a lot of disappointed people and we don't want that. We want India to be a great experience for companies that are, that are coming on board. So it's it's not set up for big runs, but small runs for plush. And you said one other material is is feasible. Plush is feasible for small runs we could mm-hmm. do in terms of plastics and um, wood, 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 that's wooden what products. Ask. We have amazing partners in wood, and we've explored India extensively. Uh, we've got amazing companies that can produce wooden product, and you know, again, they're they're able to do the smaller runs as well, capable of of meeting the requirements for the European and, and US standards, which are very important. Yeah. And I think in terms of the plastics and general toy, let's call a mass market toy, mm. we need to do the runs. We need like, the volumes. Twenty five thousand. Like, what are we talking? 5,000, yeah, 5,000 Oh, 5,000. Oh. Okay. Yeah, 5,000 or 10,000. But, you know, we're talking about multi- not one skew. It would have to be one, you know, an assortment. So let's say there's a range and there's five uh, different skews in an assortment. We'd have to do 20,000, let's say, to make it feasible. 20,000 pieces. Mm-hmm. I'm also wondering, like, what's your annual expectation? Like, what are factories looking at annually to get from these toy opportunities? Yes. Volume-wise or dollar-wise? Volume-wise. I think 50,000 pieces plus on an item uh, is where you'd probably be at a comfort level. Right. I think that's where it makes sense. I'm talking general plastics. Yeah. It doesn't mean we can't do the smaller runs. It just means that they're going to be maybe not as cost-effective. Right. But if I say that you're not as cost-effective, also you look at the freight rates now, the way it's, the way it's looking. So yeah, I want to get into a comparison conversation if we can. So sure. so yeah, sure. let's talk a little bit about freight rates comparative to China. What what can you share? Yeah, I can share a couple of examples. Uh, you know, it's very dynamic at the moment. Today, you make a phone call to a freight company. It's X price. Tomorrow, it's another price. Yeah. It could be changed in hours. Like so as it's being loaded onto the ship. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, it's actually yes. gone up $5,000. <laughs> I've heard stories like, listen, I've heard stories like that. I've heard some pretty bad ones, you know. Oh, um, so. I think India, in terms of going to the West Coast and US or going to Europe, we're faster and we're, we're going to be a bit more cost effective. There's been variances. Going back five months ago, there's probably a 30 to 40% variance in the shipping. I'd say, you know, about that period. When it was really bad. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it was really bad. So that, yeah. exactly. So it was, it was around that range. We're definitely lower in terms of China, but it depends on the freight forwarder. It depends on the day. Generally speaking, it's be- if, I, if you ask me what's better, yes, from India, it's more cost effective. And then we need to look at the net outcome at the end of the day landed on terms of are we competitive? And even though India may or may not be as expensive or as cheap as China, what is the net outcome when it lands? Let's define landed. Okay. Uh, landed means FOB. Uh, freight on to the board. Port. Freight on board. <laughs> you got to define, define it all. Everything. Yeah. Defi- yes. Everything. And then, and then, obviously, clearance of customs in the uh, desired port of choice, whether it's Hamburg or whether it's Manchester, wherever it might be. Mm-hmm. That is how we measure. We should measure India, not measured by the FOB price from the factory or the XWorks price, but measured by the landed price, because mm-hmm. that is where we are making a difference. Ah. That is where. It is going to be more interesting. Also, to Europe, it's faster. It's quicker. I was going to ask that next. Like, yeah, what's the speed look like? Okay, how yeah, much quicker? Least, well, 20 days, I think 21 days to some parts of Europe. I think it's considerably quicker. 
you know, I think it's it's considerably quicker to China from from China, especially when you need goods in time. You know, when you're looking to get replenishment. And remember, now everybody wants to replenish rather than mm-hmm. loading up their inventory. Right. So now we've got these runs that are happening more continuously. Whereas Europe used to plan one year ahead or mm-hmm. or X amount, it's becoming more on demand, right. which is much tougher. It's much tougher, you know, especially with the with the time difference and the delays. So I think there's that play as well, where's the proximity and the, the, the distance and the time. You know, I think there's a factor there to be considered when it comes to Europe and Middle East, obviously, as well. And what about just like the speed of like product development, also the speed of communication? Like, I mean, have you worked with uh, manufacturers in China, like doing this whole process as well? Because I know you were doing sales and distribution. Yeah. Primarily. Yes, I was. I've, I've actually manufactured goods myself. Over the years, I've got, I've oh, okay. got involved in manufacturing some products on my own over the years oh, okay. in China. So, so how yeah, do you so compare the experience. communications? Because some people just might be af- so afraid of it and feel like, oh my gosh, it's like a whole other way of speaking and dealing with people. I don't even know how to do, like, wh- how do you feel that the communications are? Do they vary or different or is it similar? It's a great, great question. And I'll say this to you. 25% of the population of India speaks English. Yeah. <laughs> Right? Yeah. Versus I mean, 5% I've, in China. Yeah, I feel like most of versus 5%? Yes. That's, no. the, that's the stats. That's the stats. Whether it's accurate or not, yeah. that's the stats. That's the stats. I think it might be skewed. I think India's got high. I think English speaking is higher in India. I think it's probably, probably. more like 40, 50%. Mm-hmm. And I'm expecting China would be probably probably around the 25%. Mm-hmm. But I'm going off the stats that the stats that are on record that I can find. Yeah. But language is a huge factor. Communication. So how is communication? Right. Communication is fantastic, mm. right? From, from actual communication. In terms of requirements and in terms of what people want, there's an education process. So whatever you make in China doesn't necessarily mean it's made in India right now, which means you need to take that next step further and explain to them, what are you doing? You're going to have to give a lot more detail, a lot more detail to the companies give, in give India. Give us an example. Okay. I want to produce a collectible figure. Firstly, that collectible figure might be made of a certain TPR or TPE material. Mm-hmm. And you've got a feel. You might have a feel where it's a squishiness. Now, how do I get that squishiness? I can measure the density, but what's the true feeling of it? The true feeling is a formula. Now, the formula of how it's put together, how do I get that formula? Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't mean the factory in China is going to say, by the way, thanks so much. I understand you would like to move to India or your manufacturing. We're happy to be of service. What would you like us to help you with? Right? We yeah. unfortunately don't yeah. get that. We're not yeah. getting that. So. Yeah. And I understand that. And that's a reality of the situation. So we need to dig deep. We need to do a lot more cross-checking. We need to do some more testing. We need to get samples. We need samples. We need information. I need data. I need spec sheets. I need as much information you can possibly give me. And even then, it's still not enough. Right. <laughs> but I'm, I'm obviously uh, – I'm uh, Being cheeky. I'm embellishing that. Yeah, cheeky, yeah, <laughs> in what I'm saying. But – but we get there. You know, if you've got patience, mm. if you've got the resolve and patience, and that's why we're there to fast track it. That's why we're there as that conduit to make it work, to be the manufacturing consultant, agent, whatever you want to call it, managing on the ground mm. with you, mm. holding the hand of the manufacturer and explaining to them our experience. We understand how things work. So we accelerate that. That's why we can help companies who want to transition to manufacturing in India because we can give that extra that service, that ability to provide what they need to make it happen. And we can cut through what we can and can't do. So if a company says, I want to produce this in India, I'll say to them straight away, look, love to do it for you. Not there yet. Right. Or yeah, absolutely. 
These are our options. Let's explore them. So we, we everything that's produced in China cannot be produced in, in India today. It doesn't it doesn't exist that way. But let's say somebody has like a wooden toy product, pretty simple, and say it took them, I don't know, let's say it took them like eight months to develop in China. Would you say they could probably develop it in the same time frame or should they just add on an extra like four months or two months to start from scratch and develop it in India? Just to give people an idea of if you want to make this move, pad on a little bit of extra time. I think always add extra time. <laughs> I think extra time is, is, is always needed development. But in this scenario, I think eight months, nine months is very realistic okay. in terms of development. And that's what we're seeing mm-hmm. in terms of projects. And how complex are the projects? Like low complexity, like no mechanisms or high complexity. It's a doll with features and, you know. I've gone from simple to complex. It's maybe varies three months could be three month variation if it's a very complex maybe it's a 12 month project okay if it's very complex which i've just we're just completing now uh we've we've been involved in a, in a huge project in india that i think is going to make a lot of news uh Ooh. in the next few months okay yeah yeah i think that's going to be really interesting to talk about and uh very exciting but that's been a, a huge undertaking so i think complex probably 12 months uh, we've turned around stuff in about four months on some simpler projects okay. as well so it can vary it just i think it, it varies it varies on the manufacturer some manufacturers we're working with in india are very experienced in certain areas and so we can turn around the prototyping and sampling very quickly compared to maybe another manufacturer who's still learning the ropes in a category who's mm-hmm. growing, who's able to do it, but it's taking a bit longer because there's a bit of an education process with them. So this depends on which product you're making and which factories because there are multiple categories we can work in and there are some that are much more experienced than others. doesn't mean they're any less effective, right. but they just they need that push and education to make it work because the client wants to look at alternative manufacturing because now they're open because they need it because they're interested in it. Mm-hmm. And just to throw the, a comment in here about uh, manufacturing and sourcing. I don't know if you're familiar with Walmart. They have a mandate, actually, on their corporate mandate on their website that states that 30% of their sourcing should come from India by 2027. I did not. I did not see that. You can actually Google it. You'll see there's a mandate, and I think it's like $10 billion a year until 2027 or some yeah, huge figure in terms of their interest. I That's mean, there's Vietnam, deal. there's Mexico, but India is definitely the one they are touting as, as where it's uh, quite important for them to have those building blocks, not just in toys, but obviously every category under the sun. So tell me if somebody really wants to work with Source for India, say they're a small independent toy maker, can they afford your services? Like, is it going to add an astronomical amount to the to their manufacturing cost to be working with you? Absolutely not. We are very transparent the way we work. Every client's got a different process and a different, a diff, we, you know, we weigh it up. It's, it's not one size fits all. Okay. Uh, and... We are open to working with anybody and everybody that wants to manufacture in India, not just in toys, but other categories as well. We're very, very receptive. And we'd love to talk to people because we're educating. You know, the first six months of when we started was educating companies on why India. Mm-hmm. Forget about making India. It's why. Where is India at? We'll do it right what now. Why, why India? Tell us right now, Josh. Why? why okay. All right. Why India? India's got the largest youth workforce in the world. There are tax breaks and incentives for manufacturers across India, which means we have capacity to grow a manufacturing base and scale up very quickly, both in space and also labor force, skilled labor and low-skilled labor, both sides of it. We have no tax on exports. There are six regions in India where we can produce products that are close to the ports that 
means we don't have a very large cost base of transport modes to the ports. So we have the infrastructure ready and built. We don't have Chinese New Year. We don't have a lot of the holidays. <laughs> they don't take vacations. <laughs> they don't take the, the factories closed down for two, three days at best during the course of the year. Terrible. You know, so so we, you know, everybody has their holidays, but they just don't go as long. <laughs> okay. So you know, we have more time. We have more time to manufacture during yeah. the course of the year. Yeah. Okay. That's which is true. a big, you know, which is a big, which is a big factor. I don't know. Um, I can hear like toy designers across the U.S. like groaning. Like that's my one break. <laughs> That's my one it's break the, in the year, I'm Josh. Sorry, we're not, no breaks in it. We have no breaks. So we keep going day and night. Doesn't stop. It's source for India. Uh, wow. Uh, and then we also have, I mentioned to you, freight rates and proximity that we have. And the labor cost in India is one third. That so is the thing I wanted to talk to you about. Yeah. Thank you for bringing it up. So yeah, the cost, yes. the labor cost difference. Because last time yes. I checked, and I haven't checked China in a while, I remember it was something yes. like 4 or $5 per hour, right? Yes. Now, yes. so what is the labor it's, cost in India right now? I I think it's, uh, I've got different figures. You know, I've got a dollar. You know, there's like a dollar five, wow. uh, depending on this la- on the on the la- on the labor. But you're talking on a month. Let's talk on a monthly basis. Right. We're approximately a third. It's approximately a, it's monthly, and depends where in India. There are different cities and different different wage outcomes. Hmm. So you've got cities in Chennai and uh, in uh, Bangalore, which might be higher or depending on how far north we go or west we go or south we go, it can change. But generally speaking, you know, we're going just level field approximately a third of the cost. And I think there's like a shocking amount of hand labor that people don't realize are happening in factories. I remember when I would go and travel and just see the way that things would be painted or like things would be packaged. You know, it's it's mostly automated, but there are still people there like touching things and putting their hands on things. I don't think people realize how much hand labor there still is involved in creating product, especially once you want your you want your really detailed like paint ops or things like I don't think people realize. So that's that's, that's important. Uh, this, yeah. you, 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 you know, toys are played with from the early days to the end. It's an industry where it requires a skill to make products that look great. And mm. um, that's where China still has that efficiency yes. and will always be a place. You know, remember, when talking about alternative and additional manufacturing. We're not talking about replacing manufacturing, okay? Right. Let's be very clear. This is about companies diversifying. Then we can do the testing. Like the, the big factory in India is before, how do we do testing? The I was going to go there next. Testing. I was going to go there next. Yeah. Like people are probably listening worried like, yeah, but what happens about toy safety tests? Just general tests before I get into Walmart, before I get into all those big box retailers. And they're like, we can't do that in India, can we, Josh? Absolutely. We've got Intertech. We've got BV. Uh, we've got SGS. You know, we can test whatever you like. So if we're able to export to some major companies, which we're going to be doing in 2022, uh, into the US and into Europe, into Australia, into some parts of the Middle East, we have to meet all those requirements. For domestics, one thing, which is a massive market, Mm. and exports another. You need to meet them both. This is fantastic. I am so excited for not only my listeners, but also the students of Toy Creators Academy, because I have a feeling I'm going to be connecting with you and, and connecting them with you more actively in years to come. Because I, 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 I yeah, I, I know they would love to too. Anything else? Any, I feel like any other areas that maybe you're thinking that we didn't really touch on that you would love to share or anything coming up for the Indian market that you'd love to share? Yeah, a couple of things. Uh, firstly, there's going to be some free trade agreements on the cards between India and some major countries in 2022. I think that's going to make a difference and impact. You think there's going um, to be? Free tra- 
Yes, there's going to be some free trade agreements completed in 2022. And I think that's going to be a huge benefactor for both, you know, the countries that are importing from India and also for India itself. So I think that's a big, a big change. India's got a lot of red tape and bureaucracy, and I think that's all going to start changing uh, fairly soon with these FTAs that are, that are coming. So I think that's very exciting. I uh, also think that we're going to be able to navigate more categories outside of traditional toys as well in India with a lot of factories in India that are moving away from auto- automobile parts, but into other other categories. When I mean toy, like I mean sporting goods. Mm. So other categories that are beyond just regular toys. And I think, you know, we need to be able to provide solutions uh, to a lot of uh, markets. There's very typical manufacturing in one or two countries that exist and that don't exist in India. I mean, an example is helmets, bike helmets, and not really produced that much in India. Motorbike helmets are, but actually, uh, you know, bike helmets. Mm-hmm. So that's a huge opportunity I see for global markets Interesting. Uh, in, in 2022. And I also think that uh, once we open up travel, this is the big thing, once we open up to traveling and we can start moving around, which is soon, and I think the world will open up and start seeing India and visiting. And, and I would welcome companies who want to go visit India and see what they're doing in the factories and how they're doing it and are open to working with companies like ourselves and the factories and to educate. You know, there's a lot of education that needs to take place. And we'll also see factories in China, I think, also interested to take part in India because of the domestic market. They want to also achieve success mm. in the domestic market. So it's not just closed. They want to forge relationships. We've seen it in technology as well. There's been some forged relationships with manufacturers, with mobile phone companies. And then you've got the semiconductor chips, which I think will, will make a play in where the government's now going to pour in billions of dollars to, to spearhead a semiconductor facility and to, to account for hopefully hopefully 10% of the world's uh, fabs by 2025 or 2026, where they can make a play in that in the fabrication of, of uh, semiconductor wafers. I think that's going to be wow. a big thing where we can become more self-sufficient for electronics. So electronics will be a big game changer in India as well in the coming years where everything can be completed locally. And my, my last point, Ajel, is that a lot of the su- people ask a question to us all the time. Do you have the supply chain in India? Can we source everything So locally? that was what I was going to ask next, like raw materials. Because everyone's like, yeah, we want to move outside of China, but all the raw materials are in China. So like, yeah, okay, go. I would say majority of the time, yes, a lot of the resins and plastics and wood and Componentries, electronic componentry, a lot can be uh, done and is being done in India. Uh, but there are going to be things that we can't do, like IC chips. It's from Taiwan. It's from China. You know, certain fabrics, synthetic fabrics, we need from Taiwan or China. So there are things that we're going to need support still, and that may or may not change. And there's nothing wrong with that because, you know, we talk about a, a shipping cost difference. If you and sometimes sourcing the material through a third party works out cheaper than in-house anyway. So you really you can, you'll find that there's a lot of moving parts, mm-hmm. but if we can supply most of the things on the ground within India, we're doing really, really well. And mm-hmm. we're finding that we can, and we are, and we will do it this year for many products, particularly some more high-tech products too. Yeah. Uh, I think that's where those, but then again, as I said, there's also inefficiencies. So it's not like it's an absolute replacement, but it's definitely capable of doing a lot and a lot more what most people think because whatever thought they have on India or stigma they might have with India, throw it out the window and rethink India. It's not what you think. And that's to everybody who's listening because there's still unfortunately a lot of old thoughts of the past of India of 10 years ago, 15 or 20 years ago, okay, that is not the case today. New business owners, new families taking over factories, 
educated groups outside of India that are coming back to take efficiency from outside inward. It's a different story today. Oh, so good. Thank you. Thank you, Josh. I think we're going to have a lot of people calling Source for India after this interview. Oh, I'd love to just talk about India. And as I said, happy to talk about it. And, and uh, we're open to you know, any time you'd like me to talk about India, I'd be happy to do so. I almost feel like I'm a spokesman. In, I'm all not from India. I feel like I've I've done I so know, much the speaking way you were for the talking, country. Yeah, the way you were talking, I was like, did he convert? Like, does he have like a dual citizenship? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I will say one thing. I do have roots in India. Oh, but I'm not. From, yes, okay. I do. So that's another story for another time. Another time. Thank you so much for being here today, Josh. That was a lot of fun. I'm so happy and thank you so much for having me on. I'm really privileged to have the time to talk to you and also to reach out to your listeners. And uh, I look forward to uh, keeping in touch. Yes, me too. Take care. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Well, there you have it, toy people. My interview with Joshua Punin of Source for India. I hope that this episode inspired you to look outside of China for manufacturing if you haven't already. And as Joshua said, we're not looking to replace those options in China entirely, but rather expand our opportunities and expand our bandwidth and capabilities to produce goods for various opportunities around the globe. The biggest takeaway for me from this episode is that there are major retailers and toy companies out there that have public goals to move 30 to 60% of their manufacturing of their toy products out of China and to someplace else, some of which have already specified India as the place they plan to move them to. Now, Joshua invited you to reach out to him, whether you are a small toy creator or a large toy company, because he may be able to potentially help you find a new manufacturing partner. If you enjoy today's episode, or if you just love this podcast in general, and you haven't left a review yet, what are you waiting for? I love seeing your reviews come through. I get an email notification whenever a new one is posted. It means the world to me and keeps me motivated to come back again and again, bringing you valuable content from my personal experience or the experiences of my guests. Before we sign off today, I've got to give a major listener shout out to Toy Creators Academy alumni and current FedEx Small Business Grant finalist, Misty, the creator of Four Purpose Kids and the Global Kidizen doll line. Now, Misty launched this product before she was in Toy Creators Academy, but we did work together one-on-one to help refine the product message and branding. Misty is truly a mission-driven toy creator who used her time in Toy Creators Academy as an accelerator, and she used that time to refine and really start marketing her toy brand like a boss. This toy creator has done the work. And because of that, she is a finalist in the FedEx Small Business Grant Contest. But now she needs your help to take it all the way. So if you want to help Misty reach her toy dreams, head over to Instagram, go to at for purpose kids. That is Misty's Instagram profile. In the bio of that profile, you will see a link where you can vote for the For Purpose Kids line to win this grant, and you can vote every day. So I want you to vote every day and help Misty reach her goals, okay? 
As always, thank you so much for showing up here with me today. I know there are a ton of podcasts out there, so it means the world to me that you tune into this one. Until next week, I'll see you later, toy people. Thanks for listening to Making It in the Toy Industry podcast with Ajel Wade. Head over to thetoycoach.com for more information, tips, and advice. Hey, are you an aspiring toy inventor or toy entrepreneur? Then you should check out Toy Creators Academy, the first of its kind online program designed to help you develop and pitch your toy ideas. Head over to toycreatorsacademy.com to learn more.